Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to this special live edition of the Cynical Podcast, coming to you today from SubChina's Next China Conference here in New York. Let's hear you folks make a little noise. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to stay on top of the most important news from China through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and, of course, at the website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined here in New York by SupChina's editor-in-chief, Jeremy Goldcorn. Any Jimmy fans in the house? <laughs> That, that required a little too much encouragement from Kaiser. <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, we are honored to be joined at the end of this terrific day by Yukon Huang. Yukon is senior fellow in the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He was country director at the World Bank from 1997 to 2004. His most recent book is Cracking the China Conundrum, Why Conventional Economic Wisdom is Wrong. It's an insightful but very controversial take on what it is that makes thinking on China, whether outside of China or inside, or whether on its politics or on its economy, so maddeningly binary and, as he claims, so fundamentally incorrect. So, Yukon, welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for joining us at the conference today. Happy to be here. Uh, Yukon, I'm sure for you to have decided finally to write a book for a popular audience, uh, there must have been one final straw, perhaps one claim you heard about <laughs> China or its economy that just made you say, that's it, I've had enough, I'm going to write a book. Um, I don't know if that's the case, but if it was, what for you was that event? Actually, there wasn't just one straw, there are many straws. When I, uh, <laughs> The book is an answer to a puzzle that I was dealing with uh, about 10 years ago. When I returned from Beijing to Washington and joined Carnegie, Carnegie asked me to write about China's economy. So I spent uh, several months reading about what the media was writing. I attended forums like this one. And I was puzzled by the fact that what everyone worried about, whether in New York or in Washington, about China was not something I was bothered by when I was in Beijing and vice versa. So I basically started writing about China and many of the topics came up today. Why is it that people think China's unbalanced growth is a risk when actually it's a positive development? Why do people think it has a debt problem when actually it's a sign of financial deepening? Why is it corruption is seen as an impediment to growth when in China actually it's been a booster to growth? And then we had a session, for example, on technology innovation. We assume that the more innovative you are as a country, the faster you will grow when actually it's the opposite. So this book is an answer to these questions because I started writing op-eds. I wrote 50 in the Financial Times and 25 in the Wall Street Journal. But these are 900 words. 
So each of these topics, for example, my book, it's a 30-page chapter. Uh, so still, what was that one event then? What was the one thing, the thing that finally said, okay, goddammit, I'm going to write a book? I think it's corruption. Okay. Corruption is the thing that's dominating the thinking in China. It's dominating academics here. A basic question people have to face, is corruption a problem? Or is it actually something that's helpful in China? But if it's helpful, why does the government want to get rid of it? Huh. Okay. So I told you that he was a controversial thinker, but we're going to hear today a spirited defense of corruption and unbalanced growth. Uh, so <laughs> we're in for a treat. But uh, before we get there, uh, your book actually makes the case that there's a, a kind of connection, at least among Americans, between the attitude that one has toward China and one's beliefs about China's economy. Uh, can, you, can you spell that out a little bit? What, what's that connection that you saw? Well, if, if you look at Pew and Gallup surveys of the American public over the last 10 years. And you have two simple questions. The first question is, who is the world's leading economic power? And if you go back 10 years, 90% of the Americans would say America is. 8% would say China is. Today, the majority of the Americans say China is the world's leading economic power. Even though it simply isn't. It isn't. If you ask the Chinese the same question, they will say America is. So who's right? Who's wrong? In this particular case, China's right. America is the leading economic power. But this question gets more interesting. Suppose you ask Europeans, Africans, Latin Americans, Asians, same question. Who is the world's leading economic power? What's the answer? Well, every other region in the world will say that America is the world's leading economic power, except for one region. One region thinks China is. So when I ask a foreign policy audience, what is that region that thinks China is the leading economic power? Most of the people will respond by saying Africa, Latin America. China is very much involved in investment. They think it's the leading economic power. Some people will then say Asia. They live next door. The answer, of course, is wrong, wrong, wrong. The region which thinks China is the leading economic power is Europe. Hmm. So now you have a funny situation. Why is it that Europe and the United States wrongly believe that China is the leading economic power? Everybody else in the world rightly realizes that America is. And the answer partly is trade. Europe and the United States run huge trade deficits. This has become evidence of weakness. And you see it today, of course, in the debate between the White House, Congress, and the American public about whether China is being fair or not fair in trade. American companies also, people think that American companies invest too much in China. That leads to job loss in the United States. It leads to loss of competitiveness. So the question in one of my chapters in my book, what percent of America's foreign investment goes to China over the last 10 years? The answer is one and a half percent, one and a half percent. The question is quite different. Why is it that American companies invest so little in China, not whether they invest so much? So from the general popular perceptions, basically, I basically write, why is it that we get the trade question wrong? Why is it we get the foreign investment question wrong? And if we get the question wrong, then the policy recommendation is wrong. So there's this language that says that uh, if you have a negative perception of China, though, you, you haven't gotten to that part of the Pew survey. So you have this, this 
misperception about relative economic strength. But what about attitudes and how it correlates? Well, the second question, very commonly asked of the general public, essentially, do you like or dislike China? Actually, the word is favorable or unfavorable. It's very hard to believe. But as recently as seven years ago, the majority of Americans said they were favorably disposed to China. Today, overwhelmingly, the majority has an unfavorable impression of China. Now, there's two reasons for this. One is economic. A deteriorating economic relationship, a fear that the United States is losing its global economic power position. And the second issue has to do with what I call the tensions in East Asia, the islands disputes, China's rising assertiveness. So I have a chapter in there, for example, in my book, about how should we view China in terms of those great power relationships. And I call China the unusual, the abnormal great power. It doesn't behave in the normal way that we think great powers behave. It's the first developing country that's become an economic power. It's the first country that's going to get old before it gets rich. It's the first great power that used to dominate the world 200 years ago, and it's a returning great power. Its institutions are not the same as great powers. If we start thinking of China as what I call an abnormal great power, then we realize the other aspect of the question, why is there so much tension between the United States and the United States and China? So you then, just to, to, to drive this home, a negative sentiment toward China, this negative disposition that people now seem to have in the United States toward China, is correlated somehow with a positive assessment of its economic power. And this favorable position that they had, this favorable uh impression that, that, that Americans, the majority of Americans had of China seven years ago correlated with a time when they believed China was not the leading economic power. So that's interesting because I see a different kind of, an almost opposite correlation if you just zoom in on just the community of sort of specialist China watchers or, or economists. I see people, interestingly, uh, who are who tend to be bearish on the Chinese economy. They have opinions of the Chinese government that tend to be relatively negative. They tend to emphasize the illiberal nature of, of the Chinese leadership. Go, they Gordon tend to, Chang possibly sure, being sure. the he, extreme He's maybe an extreme example, yeah. a very extreme example, extremely bearish and extremely, you know, uh, anti-China, as it were. But, you know, I think there are tendencies uh, that, that I think if you were to plot this, you would see them cluster, whereas people who are more bullish tend to emphasize how much things have changed for the better. They tend to see you know, sort of the progress. They tend to emphasize, uh, you know, China's uh, uh, integration into global systems and, and so forth. Uh, how do you? How do you? You can see China's rise both positively and negatively. Okay. Actually, in the immediate years of the global financial crisis, views of China improved because people were saying, "Well, China is rebounding; was doing well. This will perhaps uplift the whole world. It'll help the United States." So, American opinions of China actually tilted more favorable during those first few years of the global financial crisis. But then as China continued to grow more rapidly in the United States and the United States sank, you have the other kind of concern. I'm losing status. I'm losing advantages. It's a problem. The so-called Thucydides trap that there's potentially going to be conflict. Then you have another stream, another stream which basically says, here's a country that grew at almost double-digit rates for three decades, it has weak institutions, it's not democratic, it's authoritarian, it doesn't follow the rule of law. How can this be? And it, it isn't. 
it really isn't going to succeed. It's going to collapse. Its, it's GDP numbers are fictitious. They're all made up. Uh, it's got all these vulnerabilities and weaknesses. That's another aspect of what I call a negativism. So the negativism can come from a concern that how can this economic model be so good, working so well? It just doesn't make any sense. Or it comes from a, a worry about the loss of status here in the United States. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, Yukon, on, on the show, we've interviewed a number of economists who study China. And uh, while many of them also challenge conventional wisdom, uh, mainly in the case of our guests, they, they challenge the bears who obsess about China's debt or who just don't think China can rebalance. Um, I think, you know, because of Kaiser and my own interests, we tend to attract people who are not that bearish <laughs> or even very bullish on China. Um, but you know, even uh, folks uh, like these, uh, you uh, seem to have uh, many disagreements with uh, some of these more bullish economists who look at China. And even with Chinese economic policymakers themselves, you are not necessarily um, uh, in agreement with some of their thinking and their choices. Basically, everyone is wrong. <laughs> um, and I'm with you on a lot of this stuff, especially the lazy, reflexive thinking on China that does not examine its own assumptions uh, or measure them against observable facts. And there really is way too much of that, both in the media and in the uh, uh, financial uh, analyses you see if you follow investment flows. One area where you, you can't diverge from even the bulls is the role of state-owned enterprises and the state. You challenge the basic classic liberal assumption that when it comes to the state's role in driving economic growth, less is more. In fact, you emphasize the extent to which state policy has been key and why fiscal policy is still the key to continuing growth. Can you make the case for that succinctly for us here? Well, if you pick up a, any textbook on growth, economic development, our view of the economy is based around the concept of a firm, a company, mainly a private company. It invests, it grows, good policies, it develops. The economy in China is not just a firm. It includes the state. It includes local governments. Local governments invest, they hire, they compete. So China's economy is extremely unique in this way. There are actually two players, the government and the firm. And if they behave in what I call coordinated, constructive fashion, you get super good outcomes. That's why you had double-digit growths for three decades. But when they don't actually work in harmony, and that can happen, and it's actually been happening in the last few years, you can have a problem. So our view of what I call an economy needs to be modified by the fact that the state plays a role. That role could actually change the way we look at the economy. Now, in our economics, we quite often uh, include the concept of state-owned enterprises as an entity. We rarely include the concept of a local government as an economic entity. Local governments in the last five, six, seven, eight years, they drive land development, commercial development. They drive competition across provincial boundaries. Now, part of the success of China is that localities in China compete. Why is it this country with such weak institutions actually manages to produce such high-quality products at a reasonable price? It has competition. It can waste a lot of resources, but nevertheless, competition forces companies eventually to either do well or they basically sink. And this is why China, for example, is quite different from in India. The states in India do not compete with each other. The provinces in China do. So the role of the state, 
the way it exerts pressure in the economy is something we actually do not have an easy way to measure or to understand. So when you're talking about interprovincial competition, you're talking about, uh, look, I want to show more impressive GDP numbers than, uh, you know, he, me and Hubei. I want to show that, that we've outdone Hunan, right? Uh, and, and toward what end? It's so that the provincial party secretary will be elevated to the Politburo Standing Committee? Is that, is that the ultimate sort of? Well, that's, that's a, a, an aspect of what's going on in China, which has drawn a lot of attention. Just within the last few days, for example, there have been articles commenting upon the fact that the local government GDP statistics in some provinces are made up. Sure. And therefore, it reinforces <laughs> the view. It wasn't exactly news. To- <laughs> okay. Wall Street Journal had a poll. 30 economists they surveyed. The question is, does China fudge its numbers, its growth numbers? 29 out of 30 said yes. And it said basically, GDP numbers are overstating growth in China. So what do I say in my book? I have an annex on this. <laughs> I can't guess. Okay. In my annex, I basically say G- China's GDP numbers are really messed up. They're conceptually flawed. There's inconsistency. There's a problem. But the actual result is that China's GDP numbers understate. How did I know you were going there? <laughs> they don't overstate GDP growth in China. And why is that? Because about a half of the GDP numbers in China are still left over from what I would call the central planning days. So China's GDP accounts understate services. They understate private sector activity. The gray markets. The gray markets. Take housing. Housing expenditures in most countries account for anywhere from 8 to 15% of GDP. That's essentially rentals or ownership of housing and therefore providing housing to you. That's a very significant share of GDP in every country. In China, housing accounts for 2% of GDP because everyone who lives in socialist era housing, that doesn't show up in GDP. So there are all these biases, and we all know the housing market has exploded in China. So these biases, in some lead to China's growth numbers of GDP, understating the speed of growth in China rather than overstating it. So you think it's a wash then, basically, between the fudging and the understatement, the undercounting, that, that the, the 6.9% number that we got for... for- well, the, the numbers are, very, are really messed up. So if you stay with China's GDP numbers and you work with them for long periods of time that I have, for example, what you know is the following. When the economy is slowing down, the numbers tend to be a little bit too optimistic. When the economy is doing well, the numbers are too pessimistic. Over time, therefore, the numbers are a little bit more accurate. But any one moment in time, actually, the numbers may not be very accurate. Okay, so we'll all stop worrying. <laughs> uh, one other thing that maybe we ought to be, maybe we can get you to help us stop worrying about, uh, Andy Rothman's done a good job with that for me, uh, and it's on the issue of debt. Debt has, as a, as a percentage of, you've heard the statistic here before, it's past the 250% mark as a percentage of GDP. Where does that put it, first of all, uh, in comparison to other countries around the world? Is that something that we should be worrying about? And it's, it's not so much the absolute number, of course, but it's the rate of change, that it's that that number has climbed so precipitously just in the last few years. So why shouldn't we worry about that? Well, let's just stick first with the number. Currently, China's debt-to-GDP ratio is somewhere between 250 to 260 percent. That's corporate debt, household debt, government debt, both central and local. So what is this number? Where is it placed China? Suppose you line up the 100 major economies of the world, 
by GDP, debt to GDP ratios, lo and behold, China's exactly number 50, right in the middle. Higher than most developing countries, lower than most developed. So then the question is, what is China? Is it a developing country or is it a developed country? I would describe it as higher than most developing countries and lower than most developed. Exactly. It's exactly where you'd expect. So it's after the sudden increase, it's exactly what we would expect. But as you pointed out, the concern is with the speed. Because in the last eight or nine years, the debt to GDP ratio went up 100 percentage points to GDP. We've never seen anything so rapid. So how do you explain such a rapid increase in debt in China? And isn't this a sign of vulnerability or risk? And in my chapter, I say no. There's something very unusual about China's debt numbers. It relates to the property market. And it's a subject we also talked about today. How much did land or property prices in China increase over the last decade? The answer is 550%. Now here in New York, if property prices double, we think about a bubble. Surely 500%, 600% is a bubble. And the answer, no, it isn't. And why isn't it? Because 10, 15 years ago, there was no private property market in China. All properties owned by the state. Official property land auctions were only established in China in 2004. So the surge in property prices in China is essentially credit debt markets trying to establish the value of an asset which in central planning days was unknown. So when I ask people, do you think now that there's a property bubble, is it too high? How do you know? What you, who should you compare it with? Should I compare it with New York, Singapore, Hong Kong? And that's what people do. I say it's wrong. Let's compare it with India. Let's compare property prices in Beijing with property prices in New Delhi, property prices in Shanghai with property prices in Bombay. Who's higher? Who's lower? Now, India's per capita income is one-third of China's. Its growth rate is about 40% less. Conventional wisdom would say to you that India's property prices should be lower than China's. In fact, they're twice as high today. In these big In these big, big cities. Big, big, big cities okay. right. That's fascinating. You con- China's debt is concentrated in the state sector, as you point out. Uh, Andy Rothman, uh, Kaiser just mentioned, he spoke this morning and was on our show uh, last year, has made an argument that really stuck with me. He suggested that we should see all that debt as essentially a social program. Uh, with state banks lending to state-owned enterprises, meant mainly to maintain employment and to prevent social instability. Do you agree with that approach? Well, in my book, I say that everyone thinks China has a financial problem, a banking problem, a potential financial crisis. And I basically agree with Andy in this sense. China doesn't have a banking problem. It doesn't have a debt problem. It has a fiscal problem. And this is what makes China so unusual. Now, here in the United States, when we talk about the size of government or the budget, we're talking about revenues uh, accounting for maybe 40, 41 percent of GDP. In Europe, it's about 45, 46 percent. They're more uh, government oriented. So here's China. Socialist economy owns all the resources, operates a much bigger range of social services. What is its revenue to uh, revenue? to GDP ratio in China? And the answer is 31%. Lower than most emerging market economies. 
So this is what makes China different. Here's a socialist economy. Its revenue or expenditure levels as a share of GDP you would expect to be abnormally high. It's actually abnormally low. We had a session today about the health sector. Health sector expenditures as a share of GDP in China are half the levels that you would find in normal middle-income countries. China has a fiscal problem. Its localities cannot provide the health, education, environmental services out of revenues. So what do they do? They borrow from banks. In the United States, that doesn't happen. You don't have banks, excuse me, localities borrowing from banks to build roads or to fund, fund clinics, but you do that in China. And this eventually shows up as a problem, but it's a fiscal problem. It's not really a debt problem. That's an interesting take. So they just get more crazily Keynesian and, and, and fix everything. I mean, because one of your, your big recommendations is that, yes, China does need to spend an awful lot more on building out its social safety net. And it needs to raise its revenues. Because right. if it doesn't raise the revenues, it's just going to end up funding this from the banking system. So these bank loans, the so-called debt problem, is actually a, a hidden fiscal, fiscal problem deficit. in disguise. It's a hidden right. fiscal deficit in disguise. It's not our normal kind of a bank crisis or a financial crisis. And the problem with the way that it's carried out then is that they're lending this money, whether it's to local governments that are then you know doing infrastructure construction or whether it's to... Uh, to state-owned enterprises, there's a moral hazard problem, right? That they're, they're not obliged then, they, the money comes too easily, there's no penance for no, for no repayment, and they don't allocate capital efficiently, then they don't, but, and yet they do. So that that is going to touch on, on this issue uh, of corruption that uh, I do uh, want to get to. Uh, but let me, let's talk about this other, this other bit first. You know, you talk about unbalanced growth as as being essentially a good thing. And ironically, one of the two economists whose works you draw on pretty extensively to support this idea is somebody who's quite bearish on China. And he's a Nobel Prize winner. And he writes a column for these guys up in, in the New York Times building. It's Paul Krugman, of course. Right? Uh, and the other is Arthur Lewis. So can you talk about these two theories, about the theory of, what, what does he call it, uh, uh, the new economic geography by Krugman, and the other, uh, Arthur Lewis's ideas about, uh, about labor migration, essentially. Right. I have a chapter on China's growth model, right. which is a big subject of debate among economists. And I basically show that Deng Xiaoping, the architect of China's growth model, I call Deng Xiaoping the unbalanced reformer. And that's a very strange term. So what did Deng Xiaoping do in 1980? He basically said, I'm going to concentrate all my resources, all my effort along three or four spots along the coast, Guangdong province, Fujian, Shanghai, just along the coast. Everybody else, you have to wait. And he gave them the money and he gave them the incentives, special export processing zones. Then the people followed. 200 million migrant workers Throughout China, flooded to the coastal areas, the money, the people, and China's export industrialization process took off. So I basically say, how do you explain this? We've never seen this kind of a process in any other country before. No other government's ever tried this kind of unbalanced focus. And I basically say, this is exactly what two Nobel Prize winning economists had written about. One was Arthur Lewis, who talked about ruled urban migration, high investment, unbalanced growth as the key to success. And the other was Paul Kogman, New Economic Geography. If you concentrate money, people, incentives in big urban areas, 
you get these huge benefits that vastly exceed what you're doing, and you create a dynamism that which cannot be du duplicated. And once you're ahead, you'll stay ahead. So the interesting aspect was, of course, Dung had not read either Arthur Lewis's prize-winning uh, essay or Paul Krugman's, at that time, his PhD, which won the Nobel Prize. But basically, he followed these two concepts perfectly, and I basically explained, this is what you see in China. A very vibrant coastal area, a very unbalanced growth process, a very dynamic economy, yet in the literature, these aspects are often criticized because they're not what we would call normal. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's it's something of a straw man, though, isn't it, to say that it, it's... So look, it, these economists who you're going after, they, they're, it's not their contention that unbalanced growth was the wrong recipe in late 1978. Right. It's, they're not saying that it was the wrong recipe in 1998. It wasn't the wrong recipe until, really, uh, we started hearing about this actually first from who? From Moon Jiabao, right? When he started talking about the four uns, about, you know, he was the first person to really start talking about the need for re rebalancing in 2007. And he was on the eve of the financial crisis, and he seems quite prescient then. Is it your contention, though, that unbalanced growth is still the right way to do things now? The great danger is that unbalanced growth serves you very well, as you said. And then the question is, when should you rebalance? Right. And, and this morning we had a session where people talked about the fact that China should move to a more consumption-led growth, should start to rebalance. Everyone's asking, is consumption share GDP increasing? If so, this is a good sign. So in my chapter, I basically say, economies which succeed, the ones which manage to go from low to middle to high income, only a handful of countries have managed to do this. All of them had unbalanced growth. Then the question is, how long? The answer is 35 years it takes to go through an unbalanced growth cycle successfully. The most unbalanced growth economy that we've ever seen in economic history is the United States. Over the period 1900 to 1950, consumption as a share of GDP in the United States fell 50 percentage points of GDP at the end of that process, America became the world's superpower. Now, how much has consumption as a share of GDP in China fallen over the last 20 years, 25 years? The answer is 15 percentage points. How much did they, had they fallen in Japan, Korea, Taiwan, the other unbalanced economies? The answer is 25 to 30 percentage points. So what I'm basically saying is, in my chapter, it's not obvious that the unbalanced cycle needs to actually occur now. Maybe it should continue for another five to 10 years. And if so, China can continue to grow fairly rapidly. Now, why do I say that this should continue? We actually do not understand why consumption as a share of GDP falls as evidence of successful growth process. Most people think it falls because the interest rate is misaligned, the exchange rate is out of whack, and the answer is no. Unbalanced growth is the consequence of migration of workers from rural areas to urban areas, and that's not obvious to people. Why, why is it the movement of a farmer who takes a job in a factory in Sunzun, why should this cause consumption as a share of GDP to fall? Well, it's very simple. When you're working in farming, 
very labor-intensive. You produce crops. Most of that goes to the farmer. He consumes most of that. Consumption as a share of agricultural output is 70% in China. So now he gets a job in the factory producing Apple phones. They got parts of the equipment, factory fuel, power outlets. What is labor share of income in industry? The answer is 35%. Consumption as a share of industrial production is only 25% in China. So every worker, when he moves from farming to industrial job in China, lowers consumption as a share of GDP. But what's bad about this? That farmer's income triples. His consumption in an absolute sense doubles. Investments surge, savings surge. This is why China grows at 10% a year for three decades. Yet we write that this decline, this unbalanced growth is somehow bad. So basically, it takes me 35 pages in my book, but I basically show that the longer that you could have unbalanced growth, the more likely you're going to be able to move to what I call high-income status. Wow. That's, uh, <laughs> okay, so um, no. maybe five or ten more years of unbalanced growth. I mean, you, you, the, the vehicle does not stop when you tap the brakes. Well, here's the point. It stops when urbanization has hit a so-called natural ceiling. China's only 58% urban. It's going to go to 70% urban probably within the next 10 to 15 years. Every time someone moves from rural area to urban area, consumption as a share of GDP declines. So I'm afraid, in fact, unbalanced growth is actually going to continue for maybe another five to ten years. It should if it succeeds. If it doesn't, you're going to have economic stagnation. <laughs> I don't know how to continue. <laughs> well, I, I know how to continue. This is the subject I think everybody is really curious about. Can we move on to the second idea, Yukon, where you really part ways significantly with even the bulls and with most commentators, frankly, uh, mm. on China. Your conclusion that corruption in China, unlike in many other countries where corruption is prevalent, was actually good for growth. What does conventional wisdom tell us? And you read any of the literature written by economists or political scientists, the first proposition is the more corrupt the country is, the slower it will grow. It seems fairly obvious. Corruption reduces incentives to invest, so you have a lot of corruption, Countries don't invest as much, they don't grow as much, because investment drives growth. So how do we explain what happened in China? This is a country which has progressively been getting more and more corrupt, invests a lot, some people would say too much, it grows at a very high rate. So why is it that corruption and growth, generally speaking, over the last two or three decades, has actually promoted growth rather than retarded growth. So are you positing causation or just correlation? Causation. Causation. So wow. why is corruption bad in India, bad in Indonesia, bad in Egypt, bad in Ukraine for growth? Bad in Russia. Why is it bad in Russia? Why is it good all of a sudden in China? So what is it that makes China different from any of these other countries? That's what I have to explain in my chapter. It has to be something which is unique to these countries but does not exist in these other countries. And the answer is... China is a mixed economy. The state owns all the resources, the land, the access to finance, the ability to operate something, but it generates a very low return on these assets. So Deng Xiaoping said, I have a problem. I'm not getting any growth, but I cannot privatize these assets. That would be capitalism. That would be markets. I still have a socialist economy. 
So how do you transfer the use rights of state-owned resources to private entrepreneurs? Now, those of you who study Chinese economic history will remember the term TVEs, Township Village Enterprises, sure, sure. partnerships between local authorities and private interests to make use of state-owned assets to produce something. That's, and what happens? You share the profits from the production of those products with the local authorities. It formulated, it basically instigated the basis of corruption in China. Take all the construction of the last 15 years. All of this land is controlled by local authorities and party officials. It's basically transferred to private developers for commercial and private housing with enormous profits. And that money is shared with the system. The right to operate any sector controlled by the local power authorities, formerly given only to state entities. Those state enterprises can't generate high enough returns. How do you get that right to operate to the private sector? Corruption. Well, I mean, that can't be the only way to do it. Okay, granted, look, I mean, you look at Russia. So, yeah, they're going to dispose of some state-owned asset in uh, any well, the number of Eastern European countries or in, in the former Soviet countries. And yes, they did it abominably badly, right? They they just allowed these oligarchs, these gangsters, essentially, to walk in and walk off with factories for pennies, right? Yes, that that's true. But I think that that China also had legitimate ways, didn't they, through which they could dispose of state-owned assets? Now, before I became World Bank's director for China, I was the World Bank's director for Russia. Okay, so at that time, in the early nineties. <laughs> I was talking to the Russian government. You own all these assets in the state. We know that the state can't get high enough returns. You must privatize. You must transfer all these assets to the private sector. So what did the United States government do? What did the World Bank do? We all encouraged Russia to transfer all these assets to the private sector. And Kaiser, as you pointed out. It's willy-nilly. They did it willy-nilly. Willy -nilly. Yeah. They gave it away. The oligarchs took it. You did not get what I call an equitable or sensible uh, transfer resources to the private sector. So, having seen that as an example, China realized that privatization was not the solution. It had to be done gradually over time, and it has been doing this over time. The private sector is now 85% of the economy. The state is 15. It used to be the reverse. Corruption was the means to transfer it over slowly over time. Now, the question would be, how come they had such good positive benefits? Because why didn't this lead to what happened in India? No incentive to do anything. Well, the answer is, in China, local authorities, party officials, they're all appointed by Beijing. So somebody like Xi Jinping, who worked in Fujian, and he worked in uh, Zhejiang, he gets promoted if growth investment occurs. So when party officials basically transfer this over to the private sector, legally, illegally, or partially corrupt ways. It's the results that count, and it's the results that result in promotion. Yes, and he has incentive to also say, the more we produce, the better you earn, the more I earn, and I get promoted. You don't have that in India. You don't have that in Ukraine. You don't have that in other countries. Because remember, all the party officials in the provinces and major cities, they don't come from the province. Do you, do you have a word for this kind of corruption? We have we have no benign other, corruption. Responsible corruption. <laughs> we have no we have no other example in the world of something like this. Well, I think we should co coin a phrase right here on Seneca. Uh, yeah, I, I mean responsible corruption. Does that uh, measure corruption? Having, having said that, is this sustainable? 
when when Xi Jinping basically says, I can't let this go on. Why is he saying this can't go on? After all, he grew at 10% a year for three decades because ultimately it creates a sense of injustice, unfairness, a loss of confidence in the party because it goes way out of bounds after a while. It's not sustainable. So basically what you see is what we, we talked about earlier today. The government's cracking down on corruption at every single level. So if you, in fact, start cracking down, you eliminated this kind of link that drives growth in China, has been driving growth in China. What do you have to do instead? And the answer is not something that Xi Jinping believes because he thinks that by doing this, he will preserve the status and the role of the party. You basically have to reduce the role of the party. You have to introduce the rule of law. You have to do something which is quite different than what's being happening. This is not going to be easy. So in my book, I point this out as actually the biggest, what I call, contradiction or vulnerability in the system. Can they move from a corruption-fed growth process, which is socially unsustainable, to a different kind of process where you basically have more accountability and still preserve what I call the primacy of the Communist Party in China today? And that, I think, is a big question. Yeah. Is it a question that you would have an answer for if Xi Jinping, for example, asked you what you thought of it? Well, the answer is, of course, we've never seen... The previous system, where corruption was so effective in driving growth, we never, right now, do, do not see the system that Xi Jinping wants to move to. But we have seen that this is actually a very practical and pragmatic leadership. The question is, can they forge something which has never existed anywhere else? And I don't frankly know the answer to that question. So we, we talked a little bit about this idea of, of, of interprovincial uh, competition, and, and uh, you also argue that, that protests in China have actually tended to strengthen the top leadership because uh, overwhelmingly protests are directed locally, and they actually try to appeal to leaders in Beijing. So uh, how, how is this also a source of resilience uh, for, for, for the central leadership? That, that was an interesting claim as well. Yeah, I have a chapter on social uh, disturbances democracy, revolution, and the question of what does this mean in the China context? Go back uh, many years, and you have the Arab Spring. And so you have revolts, protests, bringing down the leadership in many countries. Uh, and there was a question, isn't this going to happen in China? Won't this be a, a problem? Yes, there were I, I, whispers no. of Jasmine Revolution. Jasmine Revolution, okay. And I think, again, conventional wisdom gets it totally wrong. Social incidents, protests in China, tend to reinforce the position of the top leadership rather than weakens it, whereas in other countries, the opposite is true. When you have a protest in Indonesia or in Egypt, it tends to be focused on who is number one, the top, because that person is seeing is causing the problem. Protests in China are seen as local officials oppressing the people in the province, and if you can't solve the problem. The people appeal to Beijing. You appeal to the emperor. Do you think this is structural or cultural? This is historical and cultural, but it's been severely weakened. It's been severely weakened in the last decade because of the evidence that comes up that the very top may, in fact, also be wrapped up in some of these kind of corruptive or unfortunate practices. So there is an issue. But let me go back to the role of corruption in an authoritarian regime. Any system to survive, the leadership has to be able to sense the feelings of its people. So in democracy, we do it through voting. If you don't have voting, 
How do you get that feedback? The answer is instance of social unrest, of which maybe several hundred thousands of these occur every year. And the interesting issue in China is incidents of social unrest, if kept at a moderate level, is a way of giving feedback to the leadership in a non-voting system where you can't get the feedback. So this has, in fact, been the way of controlling something. But here's the problem. The number of social incidents in China have increased exponentially. The consequence is an economic issue. China spends now more on dealing with civil unrest than on the military and dealing with the outside world. So whereas in Washington we worry about aircraft carriers and planes and the PLA, what we don't realize that today China spends more money dealing with the issue internally than it does with the so-called military or or potential security issues in its foreign policy regime. This is a big issue that the government needs to address and is trying to deal with now. Uh, On on this question of political liberalization, uh, there is one way in which your thinking seems to reflect really conventional wisdom, uh, the old-fashioned idea of modernization theory. So in a talk that you gave at the Asia Society of Northern California in San Francisco, uh, you suggested that, uh, I'm sorry, that you suggested that just like South Korea and Taiwan did, uh, the PRC is going to liberalize when it hurt, hits a certain level of per capita GDP. That, 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 that idea is actually incredibly conventional, is it not? I mean, and one that a lot of people have, I'm, I'm still sort of attached to it, but most yes, people Yes aren't. and no. Uh, the question, I've, I made comments, I'm not a political scientist. So I, I read the literature about democratization. When is China going to be democratic? When will there be a revolution? And in my book, of course, is I say conventional wisdom is always wrong. We're looking at it quite differently. People are looking at Indonesia. They're looking at uh, the Middle East. They look at other countries. They talk about overthrows. The people get very unhappy. Uh, society uh, is, is very restless. How would an economist look at this issue? Who are the right comparators if you look at China or want to look at China's uh, political situation? And the answer would be, what do you have? You have an authoritarian regime. So begin with a comparator who has an authoritarian regime. Second, authoritarian regime that does well economically. Because most of the instances we have, economically, they don't succeed. So this makes the problem a lot simpler. There are very few authoritarian regimes that do economically very well, but there are two very easy examples, South Korea and Taiwan. Now, South Korea and Taiwan became politically more liberal in exactly the same year exactly the same per capita income level, exactly the same level of urbanization, and I go forward a little bit more, exactly at the same share of high-value services to economic activity. I'm an economist. Why does this generate potential pressures for accountability, representation, more openness? And the answer is, if it jeopardizes your economic success in a certain way. And in my book, I basically speculate, when will China reach that level of these indicators? The answer is 2025, by the way. You heard it here, folks, 2025. <clears throat> yeah, well, we're going to listen to this podcast in a few years' time and uh, get back in touch, you <laughs> um, That's fascinating. Uh, 
how, so, um, how should China continue to grow? Uh, you suggest that to avoid the so-called middle income trap, Chinese enterprises need to improve productivity. How is that going? Well, here's an interesting question, because we had a session on it today. What does the conventional economic wisdom tell us? It says that for a country to prosper, to be successful, we believe it needs to be more innovative. It needs to be oh, more this one. Yeah, technologically <laughs> sophisticated products, right? That's conventional wisdom. We believe that the more innovative you are as a country, the faster you will grow. So by now you know what my book's like. It's the opposite. The more innovative you are as a country, the slower you will grow. Okay? Now, let me go to the next logical argument. What about companies? The more innovative you are as a company, the better you will do. Your stock values will surge. It's a wealthy effect. You will do well. But that's not the same as a country. Okay? So empirically, we now know that the more innovative you are as a country, the slower you grow. Now, why is this innovation, why do you innovation technology, why do I not use the word productivity? Because productivity is not necessarily innovation. Innovation is one aspect of it. But you can be more productive without necessarily being more innovative. And so this is the difference in China. China's got lots of problems, lots of distortions, policies which are really not allowing it to realize its full potential. They have nothing to do with innovation. It has basically faulty planning techniques. Let me give you a very simple example. Hukou restrictions in terms of where you could live, okay? So in China today, you cannot really move to the biggest cities. You must move to smaller cities. But China's biggest cities, labor is 50% more productive in China's big cities compared to smaller cities. Eliminate hukou restrictions in terms of where people can move, China's GDP growth would increase by one percentage point. We talked about SOEs, private sector, reforms, what needs to be done, management, et cetera, et cetera. Here's a very simple thing. Private companies in China, their cash holdings, liquidity that they have to maintain, is 50% more than normal. Why? Because SOEs in the government does not pay its bills on time. Therefore, to be cautious, private companies in China have to hold liquid assets much more than is prudent. What is the cost of that? The cost of that is lower rates of return, inability to expand investment. China's been recovering over the last year or two, but private investment is still stagnant. Okay? Now, these are not innovation or technology. These are distortions of the economy. Resolve that, and China could grow by, let's say, two percentage points a year higher than its current 6.5%. So innovation has a different kind of aspect. If you pour more money into innovation, research and development, education, high-tech industries, frontier industries, if you go too far, you start wasting money. This is a big choice. Now take the best example that we have of a country which has tried to leapfrog forward in the last 10 to 15 years. That country is South Korea. South Korea is the only other country which has done the same kind of a path, tried to become more innovative, 
much more innovative than you would predict for its income level. By and large, it has succeeded. It's reached the innovation levels of a Japan probably 10 years earlier, sure. but South Korea's growth has stagnated. So this question of innovation, productivity, growth, not so simple, conventional wisdom often is misleading. Jeremy, ask the last question before we wrap up and right. go to we've, the recommendations. We've, we've, sadly, time is pressing. <clears throat> Can you give us, Yukon, a quick prognosis of how things look to be shaping up between China and the United States, now one year into the Trump administration? There's a lot of talk that the State of Union uh, address that Trump will deliver on January 30 will be something of a declaration of economic war on China. The Wall Street Journal had a headline the other day, the clash of the economic titan, of the trade titans is coming. What's your sense of how things will, will go? You live in D.C. What are you hearing? I D.C. the worries, trade wars, serious trade wars. You read the articles, they talk about uh, who's going to win, who's going to lose under a trade war. Well, the answer is quite simple. Everyone loses. Okay. The sad thing is the trade war is unnecessary. There is, in my book, I have a chapter about trade wars. I have a chapter about foreign investment. The interesting issue is most people in America think that China's trade surpluses are the major cause of America's trade deficits. And I show in there that there's actually no link. There's no link at all between China's trade surpluses and America's trade deficits, but we think there is. As I said earlier, everyone thinks that American companies invest too much in China. They actually invest too little. The issue between U.S. and China is not even trade. So if we get into a trade war, which is unproductive, but trade is not even the issue. What is the issue between the United States and China? That would be the next logical question. Access. And what is it that is a problem? Are you talking about market access? Market access. For what activities? And the answer is services. China has the most restrictive environment for foreign investment into its services sector of any country in the world, actually. And who does it hurt the most? It hurts America. Because what is America's strength? It's services, financial services, media services, IT services, computer services, business services. These are America's strengths. They're being restricted by the lack of access into China. Opening that up would generate jobs in China and in the United States. It's only the only win-win kind of issue. But why isn't this being addressed? And the answer is the vehicle for addressing it is a so-called bilateral investment treaty between the United States and China. So why isn't this very high on the Trump agenda? The answer is very simple, because the White House thinks that American companies invest too much in China. So why does America want to talk about an investment treaty that would actually promote more investment in China rather than less? And I think the sad thing about the debate what's going on, is we totally missed the point. Yukon Huang, thanks so much for joining us. Truth in advertising, I told you he was controversial. I told you he was a... a so yeah, let's hear it, yeah. We've, we've just got two and a half more minutes. Uh, so let's make some very quick recommendations, uh, which we do each week on our show. Jeremy, why don't you start us off? 
Very quickly, I've recommended it before, but I, in front of this particular audience, I'd like to recommend it again. Uh, Michael Sony, who was on my politics panel this morning, and Jennifer Rudolph have edited a wonderful volume called The China Questions. It's, uh, each chapter is a question about China answered by one of the scholars uh, at the Fairbank uh, Center at Harvard. And it's just a fantastic book, both for someone who knows very little about China, but if you know a lot about China, it's, 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 it's uh, still worth a read. <clears throat> And secondly, since I've recommended that one before, radiou.com, four O's. Check it out. I'm not even going to explain it. But if you like music, <laughs> it's a music thing. If you like music, check it and out. And I'm, I'm, I've been told that I like music. So, Yukon, what do you have for us? I have for me a more personal observation. I've been sick with the flu, lying in bed for the last couple of weeks. So I was watching the movies reruns. And I just watched one movie maybe three times. And this was Hidden Figures. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, Hidden Figures. So you have these three black mathematicians thriving in Northern Virginia 50, 60 years ago. Because I came to the States uh, in the 50s, okay? I moved to Washington, D.C. What struck me when I was young, I never thought about that time, was I went to a high school, biggest high school in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. I was the only Chinese in a 600-person graduating class, okay? All right. I was thinking about how parochial Washington was back then, and you did have this issue. I remember walking into the first washroom in the amusement park about a mile from where I lived, and it basically said, whites only. And I was didn't know what to do with this. There's so few <laughs> Chinese, I didn't know what Chinese, how, do they, how, how, how are Chinese? Are they black, are they white, or whatever? But this movie brought this all back to me, and I just said, boy, we have really moved really far in some ways, but we really have moved very far in other ways. Thank you. Hidden Figures. Great. Okay. Well, mine, very quickly, I want to recommend a two-part documentary called China on Film, which is on Channel News Asia. Just go to Channel News Asia and look for China on Film. You can watch it for free there. It's some of the very earliest film ever shot in China. The first episode is called China on the Cusp of Change, and it focuses on film. It was actually shot before the, the end of the Qing Dynasty, so in the 1900s and the 1910s. It's astonishing. It's it's so well-preserved. And uh, the second part is is more sort of color, early color film, mostly from the Second World War uh, and from Shanghai in the 1930s. Amazing stuff. Check it out. Yukon Long, thanks once again for joining us here on South China's next China conference and on the podcast. We are looking forward to chatting with you again and hearing more of your unconventional wisdom. Jeremy, great to see you. have been hanging out with you the last couple of days. Likewise, and you managed to only run about a minute over. No, we're, we're, no, we are exactly Zero. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Wu and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at SubChina News. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Take care. Thanks for coming, everybody.